Yesterday before the show, our producer Nick asked me a question. Now that I live in a rural area, are there any restaurants that I miss from when I lived in the city? I was quick with an answer, and I'll tell you what it was coming up next. Helping you grow deeper on your spiritual journey. Welcome to The Inner Life with Patrick Conley. Welcome to The Inner Life. Every day we hope to bring you some inspiration and encouragement for living out your Catholic faith today. I'm your host, Patrick Conley. When Nick asked me if I missed any restaurants from when I lived in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis-St. Paul, I had to reply right away, yes, I missed all the ethnic food. In my time of just under three decades of living in the Twin Cities, I had eaten at a large variety of ethnic restaurants. The standards, like Mexican, Chinese, and Italian, but also Thai, Vietnamese, and Japanese, English and Irish, French and German, Ethiopian, Indian, Middle Eastern, Russian, and even Persian, Kurdish, and Nepalese. And you know what? I love them all. They all served up delicious dishes, even if they weren't what I was accustomed to. I came to have my favorites, of course, and I'm quite sure that some of those dishes would not be nearly as palatable to other people. Eh, we all have some unique tastes. But sometimes restaurants serve dishes that are, quite frankly, not good. And I don't mean in flavor, but in nutritional value. They're not good for you. They're loaded with empty calories, be it sickeningly sweet, overloaded with sugar, or crammed with fat and salt. I mean, sure, they taste good, but the body pays for it. And by the way, do you know what ethnicity of restaurant is, I think, the worst offender at serving these great-tasting but nutritionally awful dishes? I'm guessing it's probably American food. Anyway, why am I talking about this? Well, I think there may just be some analogical connection between some of these ethnic restaurants and the dishes they serve and the music we encounter at Mass. There are innumerable songs and chants that are delightful to the soul and do indeed help us render our worship to Almighty God. There are some hymns and carols that one person likes that another may not, so taste does enter in. But there are also songs that are just flat-out objectively bad for the liturgy, regardless of whether we like them or not, for a variety of reasons. We're talking about sacred music on the show today, and I recognize it can be a minefield of opinion but we're going to try to put opinion and taste mostly aside and look at what Holy Mother Church teaches about the role of sacred music in our spiritual lives. Guiding our discussion today is our friend, Matthew, Father Matthew Spencer. Father Matthew is a priest of the Oblates of St. Joseph, currently serving as Provincial Superior and Shrine Director for the Oblates of St. Joseph out of Santa Cruz, California. Welcome back, Father. Good to be speaking with you. Oh, thanks, Patrick. Always a pleasure to join you. Yeah, very good. All right, Father, so buckle your seatbelt. Here we go into the, the minefield of sacred music, right? So um, let's talk about what, what, is, what makes music sacred. What is sacred music and why is it important? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very important and good question to clarify in our minds because th there's all kinds of good music and some of it sounds prayerful and some of it is giving praise and glory to God. Uh, and yet is not technically sacred music. And the church does have criteria for how to understand what sacred music is. And, and the principal criteria, Patrick, to be honest, is that this is music that is 
intrinsically connected to the liturgy, Hmm. uh, either the text comes out of the celebration of the liturgy, the mass or other ways that we celebrate official liturgy of the church, uh, or that mass is created to to complement what the church asks of music to do during the liturgy, not just to tack something beautiful on, but to actually be a part of the Mass. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, sacred music, uh, by its very nature and definition when it comes to Catholic theology, is music that is connected to the liturgy and intended uh, to be a complementary part of that liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's um, it's different from, say, praise and worship music, which can be really great and which which can be really, uh, you know, kind of help us emotionally to connect to God and help us intellectually to understand God's love for us, maybe, uh, and yet is not necessarily, you know, liturgical in nature or connected to to that. So all of the all of the sacred music in the patrimony of the church flows out of the liturgy and goes back to service. So all of Gregorian chant, for example, uh, is uh, um, was intended for liturgical use and purpose, not just to make the monks feel good as they're singing inside of their monastery. Yeah, and likewise, right. all of the other sacred music that we use, sacred polyphony and, and other music, even of, of other cultures and things, is all oriented and, and centers on the liturgy. So that, that's an important thing to get clear, I think, Patrick, when we're talking yeah. about sacred music. Yeah, you use that word complimentary another uh, a number of times there in your response, and I, I can see that, that it's meant to play this complimentary role. And that's one of the things that we oftentimes, I think, can overlook or forget. It seems like when when a hymn comes up or when even in some of the, the chants, the, even, in, even in the sung dialogues of Mass, um, there can be there can be this kind of uh, response, I suppose, this this kind of gut level response. Either some people love it, they you know enter into it, and some people might hate it because whatever reason they feel like they can't sing or they don't want to sing or whatever it might be. And yet um, it is meant to be to play this, as you said, complementary role to help what bring the liturgy to uh, a greater fullness, perhaps. Yeah, I think what it does is it it, um, tries to help us to understand God's love for us and inspires a response on our part. You know, it it, um, elicits beauty from from the world and from our creation. uh, That is the creative act that we bring to the liturgy. Um, it, it is hard to, hard to define Patrick. And we could talk about this for hours, you know, just trying to narrow in on what is sacred music. But there, there is one principle that I think can help us to kind of tease this out. Um, okay. it was Pius X in a document that he published in 1903, uh, Trale which is kind of a document on sacred music. And he, he mentions that Uh, Sacred music must be holy and therefore exclude all profane things. Hmm. Now, that that is a very broad speaking thing. He's not just saying when he uses the word profane, he's not just talking about, you know, things that are uh, maybe offensive to us. He's talking about things that don't have a place in the liturgy. You know, it was common, I think, before before our times, Patrick, and, you know, right after the Second Vatican Council, it was common to to bring profane music into the liturgy, to take uh. common folk songs and to kind of uh, see them through the lens of God's love. Well, there's nothing wrong with trying to trying to see some sac- or, I'm, I'm sorry, some secular song 
and discover what truth is in there that, that comes from God. But it is very inappropriate to imagine that that would be fitting for the liturgy because it's not. It, it's intended for a profane purpose, something that is outside of the, the realm of, of, of the holy. Um, and that's why I think that's an important criteria that we, we have to use when we're, when we're evaluating what is sacred music. It's not just something that is nice and has a catchy tune and makes me remember my first love way back when, right? It's right, not just right. about kind of an emotive response. It has to connect with the real and, and solid theology of the church. But uh, just to, well, I don't know if I'm pushing back or not, but just to clarify a little bit further on that, I mean, of course, I mean, you mentioned as well that it's not just to help monks feel good in their cells and that sort of thing, but music does have this uh, have this emotional connection to some level. It does arouse, and maybe that's just its connection with beauty as well, that beauty can move us emotionally. And is there, I mean, is that part of the reason why that we we do incorporate so much music in mass or is I, I'm sure it's much broader than that, but is that part of the reason? Oh, I think it's a very, very key part of the role of music to move our hearts. Yeah. Um, but it's not the, it's not the uh, essential purpose of music to somehow create an emotional experience for us. The first, the first purpose of it is to reflect the beauty of God, right? So right. Okay. when we, when we are, uh, participating or experiencing music that is sacred and inside of the liturgy, for example, then it should not only inspire us to feel some emotions, but to also recall some important, you know, um, aspect of God's love for us, or perhaps even my own sinfulness, which needs God's mercy, or perhaps the the call that I have to love my enemy or to serve my neighbor. I mean, it's more than just an, uh, you know, something that makes me tingly and feel good on the outside. Not, not that that's bad, but it's just that the, the, the role of sacred music goes beyond just trying to make me feel something in the liturgy and actually is trying to make me more connected to to God himself right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and just um, I I don't know if you're a musicologist yourself father but uh, but and this is goes perhaps even beyond uh, certainly the the lyrics that we're singing but even the musical formation of the piece that we may be singing uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm not a musicologist, um, but I have had a long hobby in in sacred music. In fact, one of my okay. great kind of uh, loves that I discovered in the seminary was for Gregorian chant. And so I learned, just kind of soaked up everything I could about Gregorian chant. And I'm not a master of it by any chance, although I did, Patrick, uh, use my, my background in technology to create a Gregorian chant app that is still kind of popular on on the Android and Apple stores. So it is something that is important to me and something that I have some awareness of, but I would not, I would not claim to be a, a musicologist. Um, it, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I, uh, that's, that's fine. Yes. And, and I'm, I'm uh, not averse at all to mentioning that square note is the name of the app. Yeah. And that's, yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, yeah. It comes, the name comes from the notation of Gregorian chant, uh, the traditional, 
uh, notation that arrived in the la- or that uh, emerged in the last few centuries, which looks more like square notes rather than round notes. So, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I look forward to exploring it. I have downloaded it, but I look forward to exploring it further. Our spiritual director today is Father Matthew Spencer, and we're talking about sacred music. How does it lift your soul to God? Do you enjoy chanting sacred music at Mass? Have you gotten into Gregorian chant or? polyphony or are there other pieces of sacred music that especially lift your heart and soul to god if so give us a call join the conversation our toll-free studio line here on the inner life is 888-914-9149 that number is sponsored by the catholic order of foresters again it's 888-914-9149 if you prefer you can always send us an email innerlife at relevantradio.com one of the things, Father, that uh, you don't have to be in the church very long, um, even if your home parish doesn't necessarily kind of go to go in the direction of sung masses before you encounter a sung mass. And so what is the role? I mean, beyond, um, you know, the beyond the special music, quote unquote, the hymns that we sing, why is the mass itself sung? Why, why are there these dialogical pieces that oftentimes the celebrant will sing? Yeah, one of one of my seminary professors used to used to joke in the seminary. He said one of the blessings of the Second Vatican Council is that priests no longer have to uh, inflict their voice on the people at mass. <laughs> there are <laughs> nice. times now when when priests don't have to sing things. Unfortunately, what what's happened, I think, a lot o- over the years is that priests have kind of said, "Well, uh, since I don't have to, I guess I won't." And a lot of priests won't. Uh, won't attempt uh, or work to even try to, you know, intone or chant these parts of the mass. Um, now, it's it's interesting, you know, that you ask about this because music is um, is not just a, in, uh, some a thing that's added on, tacked on to the liturgy, as you might as you might uh, say. Mm-hmm. Music and and especially the chanted portions of the mass are. Are, are essentially kind of an intrinsic part of that that you can optionally not sing if you are pressed for time or if maybe you are not able, don't have the faculty to sing or don't have the support of a choir. Um, but music itself, and you'll hear this in a lot of different circles, uh, you don't just sing at the Mass, you sing the Mass, right? right? And this refers to not only the choir and the presider, but those when we're in the assembly as well, when the priest, if he intones the sign of the cross and we respond with a, a chanted amen, the idea is, is that we're attempting to lift up our voices in unison together mm. to the Lord and to add some beauty to that, to add some solemnity to, to that action of, of worship and, and liturgy that we're participating in. It, you know, I know that it doesn't always achieve that effect. I know sometimes people come to, to Mass and they, they might roll their eyes when they see me because I try to chant good portions of the Mass, you know, a good portion of the Mass. <laughs> yeah. um, and I know some people find that maybe not as helpful to their, to their life. And so we don't want it make, to make people suffer through it. But I think the idea of, of chanting and incorporating, um, you know, our, our voices and sung sung voices into the mass is to try and express our appreciation for God with more beauty. Uh, and that's a hard thing to do, especially if it's early in the morning or if we struggle to all stay in unison, but it is what we're called to to strive to do. And that's why as priests, we, we should be practicing and working on those parts of the mass. We should be preparing well so that we know what's sung so that we're careful about how we do it. 
Yeah. And my understanding is, Father, that uh, I just heard this last weekend, but I'd heard it before, too, that uh, that priests or those men who are seeking ordination in the Byzantine rite, that uh, not being able to sing the liturgy was actually an impediment to holy orders. I, I would not be surprised about for about yeah. that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with the um, you know the Eastern regulations on on liturgy in that in that sense. But um, I would not be surprised because, as you're aware, you know the many of the church, many of the liturgies in the Eastern Church have much more musicality in them, much more, and they demand much more, and that becomes an essential role of what the presider offers to the people in his service uh, during the, during the liturgy. Yeah, yeah. Great things that are going on here. As we're talking about sacred music with our spiritual director, Father Matthew Spencer. If you have a question about the role of sacred music in Mass or uh, as part of the liturgy, give us a call at 888-914-9149. Maybe you'd like to give testimony as to how singing in the Mass actually does aid you in lifting your heart and soul before God and rendering Him the worship that He is, of course, due. Give us a call, 888-914-9149, or send us an email, innerlife@relevantradio.com. We're going to take our first break, but we'll be back with lots more of the conversation here on The Inner Life right after this. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers, invites high school juniors, seniors, and recent graduates to study the great books this summer at UD's two-week-long Arete program while earning three hours of college credit. Info at relevantradio.com slash udallas. Lord have mercy as we are talking today about sacred music here on The Inner Life with our spiritual director, Father Matthew Spencer. And hey, we're unpacking this one vital component of the Mass, but if you have other questions or if you just want to get more out of Mass and enter in more deeply, understanding all the things that are going on, make sure and check check out Father Rocky's Lenten Lessons on the Mass. Uh, Those are available to you every day in your inbox throughout Lent. Just go to relevantradio.com slash Lent. Well, Father, we're, we are, as in, indeed, as I said, talking about sacred music. And we talked a little bit about what sacred music is, but obviously it's not restricted to one particular type, is it? I mean, you mentioned Gregorian chant, is, uh, um, and we'll, get, we'll talk about that. And, but uh, also polyphony, and there's other, other types of sacred music as well, are there not? Yeah, that's true. Uh, Gregorian chant has pride of place in when it comes to sacred music. This is reflected uh, in the documents of the Second Vatican Council, of course, but also prior to that, you know, the church has has always looked to Gregorian chant because of its roots, right? It's the oldest of all of the forms of music that we that we use and is closely connected to the chanting of the Psalms and and to our whole spiritual tradition as Catholics. Uh, but it's not the only the only uh, music that is admitted to the liturgy and that can be in, used fittingly uh, in the mass or in other forms of liturgy. Um, uh, indeed, the church identifies sacred polyphony, which is, you know, uh, actually, uh, I think it was Pius X said that sacred polyphony reached its its pinnacle with Palestrina in the 16th mm. century. Yeah. Um, but, uh, um, you know, there continue to be forms or uh, 
pieces of polyphony being created and crafted for for mass, and that's completely appropriate. But there's more than just these two forms, because the church also uh, brings in the cultural expressions of of the people it's evangelizing when they when they can be brought up to a fitting place in the liturgy. So the church doesn't just say, "Oh, you play electric guitar. How about we throw some holy water on that and then we bring it into mass?" Right? Uh-huh. That that's not it's not like just because it's popular in society that therefore it's fitting in the liturgy. But the church will say, if there's a certain type of uh, of music that is, uh, you know, intrinsic to the culture, has a long-standing role in expressing the the faith of the people, which are being, uh, you know, are trying to express their love for Jesus now. Then that can actually be be brought into the liturgy and baptized as such, right, for use in that role. The mm. church is very. Um, uh, I don't know if cautious is the right word, just vigilant in in this process, because it's not trying to say that, well, whatever becomes popular can then be used uh, in a sacred way. But it does say that it's not trying to trying to just say, oh, only those things from Europe from, you know, five centuries ago can be used. No, even even in our times, there are beautiful compositions being created that are very fitting for for lifting our hearts to the Lord and 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 certainly qualify as sacred music. But you'll notice, Patrick, that there that is the intent of the composer, right? The intent of the composer is to to be used at the liturgy and to be used in a way that that holds the values of the liturgy. Let, let me give you an example, Patrick. Sure. Yeah, please. Um, it's possible that somebody could write a very beautiful piece, could use uh, maybe uh, passages from Scripture, and could, um, in fact, create something that that might sound rather beautiful from a sacred standpoint, but that is, in fact, more of a performance. So that there is somebody who is doing something beautiful but is drawing attention to themselves and to their own skills and to their own craft rather than to God, right? And the church would say, well, that's not sacred music, right? That's a nice performance. But sacred music is not meant to point our attention to the singer or to the organist, but instead to to God himself. And so those are some some criteria that the church try church tries to use when it's admitting music like this or guiding composers as they try to um, to create this kind of beautiful music. Yeah, and I think that that is worthy of uh, reiterating too, Father, what you just said is that that's true of, well, anybody who participates in the Mass, right, is that uh, the whole reason for the Mass is that we're there is to render our worship unto Almighty God, and anything that might um, seek to steal away something like that, especially as we're talking about sacred music, in, including... Um, just we marvel at the uh, performance that's being done rather than at Almighty God himself. But I guess the the question that I would have in response to that is that, uh, but that doesn't mean that the quality of the performance is negligible either. No, not at all. I, I would say that um, it's very important, you know, that the the choir, the scola, the instrumentalists are are very careful in how they're executing their responsibilities. Uh, in this way, and and it should be done in a way that is, um, you know, utilizing the craft of 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 us as human beings. In fact, Patrick, it kind of kind of goes back. You know what the most important instrument that we use at math and instrument maybe is in quotation marks here 
it's the human voice, right? Yeah, it's the right. voice that, that God's given us. It's the greatest, most beautiful instrument we can bring in our praise uh, of God. Uh, and how important it is that we we develop that voice that we to the best of our ability. Not not everybody's going to be Pavarotti, right? Not everybody is going to have have a, an incredible <laughs> singing voice, and that's quite okay. You know, we don't have to all be performance artists and opera singers. Uh, in fact, that wouldn't necessarily work in the liturgy. Mm. Um, but but we we all do need to do our best to to bring what we have to the liturgy and the same would go for the organist for example as well yeah yeah okay very good talking about sacred music on the program today if you have a question about sacred music maybe something you've encountered in your own parish or if you have some specific sacred music pieces that have really served your experience of the liturgy your your experience of worship well give us a call and join the conversation at 888-914-9149 again 888-914 9149, or send us an email at innerlife at relevantradio.com. Let's go to the phones now. Siobhan is calling in from Anaheim, California. Good morning, Siobhan. Thanks for calling in. Good morning. Thank you for getting me in here. I've had this question for a long time. Why does the choir start singing a song when the priest is doing the offertory so that we don't hear the words of the offertory? I've always been taught, well, not always, since I was a child, I remember that uh, teachers in school told us that the offertory, the consecration, and the communion were the essential parts of the Mass. And so why don't we um, hear the priest say the words of the offertory? Hmm. Oh, good question, Siobhan. Thank, thanks for, for asking that. So the, the liturgy gives the option to, to the presider at that point. And what the, what the liturgy says is that actually the first, the first option is that those words are said in secret, right? Um, those words aren't necessarily always said out loud. And the words that Siobhan is referring to is when the priest is presenting or receiving the gifts at the altar and he says, blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have this bread to offer. They're beautiful words, right? And it's a beautiful preparatory prayer for the, for the consecration. But personally, Siobhan, I think there's something really beautiful about uh, those words happening sometimes even in silence. Actually, for for some uh, privileged seasons, I will I will even without music, I will say those words uh, in in secret, as is the, the the technical word that we use in liturgy. But what it means is in a very low voice, and people won't hear it really. Um, and because to me, silence is also an integral part of the liturgy. I mean. Those experiences of silence are really important in lifting up our hearts and minds to God. So, um, but you're right, there is the option. If there is no offertory music, then the priest may also say those words aloud, in which, uh, in which case the people will respond, uh, uh, you know, with their responses as well. So, so yeah, this is a legitimate option, uh, Siobhan, that, that, um, that uh, the priest may use, uh, but if there is music, he is not allowed to say, to add those words after the fact. Hmm. Okay, well, there you go. Very good. Siobhan, I hope that helps, and I hope that, I, I didn't, I I knew that, of course, when there was music playing, that oftentimes we didn't hear Father in offering the um, the the prayers, the blessings beforehand, um, but uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was unaware, so thank you, Father, for that. I was unaware that uh, it is actually, it is actually, um, uh, the first option is to say it in silence, which is great. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Siobhan. 
Let's go now to Ephraim calling in from Bellflower, California. Ephraim, welcome. If you ca- you caught me, I'm going into the car wash. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> this is unbelievable. You know, but I said I'm going to stay on uh, on the phone with you. You know, I, I, I'm very interested in, in your show. This is the first time I'm in your uh, uh, radio show. Yeah, the uh, spiritual radio show. I, I was going to the doctor. I had just blood test. I'm going to other doctor for therapy. <laughs> anyway, I'm in great shape. Don't worry about me. So anyway, the long story short, I'm Aramean. I consider myself Aramean. I grew up Catholic. I went to seminary for five years in Lebanon. I was born in Jerusalem, and I had my first communion in uh, in Bethlehem in the St. St. Helen Church. And uh, if, if we're going to get distorted right now just for about a minute, you know, I hope not. Uh, so the question is, you know, in our church, our heritage, you know, we have the treasure book of hymns. The treasure book of hymns was established by St. Ephraim. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Uh, I'm not sure. Do you do? Uh, you know about St. Ephraim? Have you ever looked it up or anything? Uh, I know of, of St. Ephraim, yes. I am not familiar with the book of hymns you're referring to, though. Yeah. We have the, tre- they're called the treasure book of hymns. This the book, treasure book of hymns. Yeah, because St. Ephraim, he was, he was formed. He, he was making a lot of poetry. It's, it's, a, it's a gospel. It's a holy, it's holy poetry. You know, it's all mm. been documented, established for the past 1800, 1900 years. Since the, the Aramean people, the first people became a Christian Middle East, mm. you know. And, mm. and the king of Edessa, if, if, uh, I'm, I'm sure you have, you have some experience in, in, uh, in the history in, uh, in the northern Syria. Edessa, you know, they call it Orfa uh, now, and the Turkish changed it to a different name. There was a king named, uh, his name Abjar. You know, he, he's Arama- he was Aramean. He was the king of that Edessa, you know. And uh, he sent a letter to Jesus, you know what I mean? And he, he heard of him. And he was, he was, he had disease, you know what I mean? And he asked Jesus to come to his kingdom and he will give him anything because he finds out Jesus has been, uh, been uh, persecuted by the Jewish and this and that, you know, and Jesus sent him a letter with another disciple of the disciple. And he's all the Ephraim, le- Ephraim, let me, let me yeah. jump in and just ask you too. I mean, uh, just, this is great information. Is this something that it continues on to, to use in your liturgy today? Yeah, we use actually the Aram- the Aramaic. We use the, uh, the they call it in Europe Syriac uh, uh, language, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. The, originally it's Aramaic. Uh, if you look it up on Google, uh, the Aramean people. Who's the Aramean people? What's the Aramaic language? You know, mm-hmm. we use most our our uh, you know liturgy is consisted of all uh, you know uh, hymns. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, even even the gospel, yeah, but except the reading, the reading of, of the you know Saint Paul and uh, others, you know, and well, you know, there's some people who cannot uh, chant, you know, they don't have that voice like I do. I'm extremely, uh, you know, I'm one of the, you know, I'm not, I'm just saying about me, but I'm involved too much in the church, and I'm involved into uh, into a lot of hymns, you know, I memorize and very long hymns. And it's for, for every occasion for Passion of Christ. And we, our hymns, certain hymns, they are like made out of seven tunes. You know, I mean, it's not just one or two or three. 
But we should we pick up like the uh, the one, uh, you know, like uh, we like most. Because today, you know, it's not like a while back. You know, I mean, maybe I could have... jump in, Everett, yeah. just to just to share. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think hymns have a. I mean, in your church, it's very clear they have a very long tradition and role. And also, I think throughout the Catholic Church, hymns have this really essential, important role. I mean, we see hymns in the New Testament, right? I mean, Philippians 2 is a, a hymn that St. Paul wrote down and, and shared with us. Uh, we don't have the music that was used to to accompany it. but um, And even down to our day, I mean, every every gathering of the Liturgy of the Hours that religious and priests and monks and nuns around the world do on an hourly basis, they begin with hymns and they often conclude with antiphons to our Blessed Mother. And so, yeah, I, I agree. And we use this beautiful poetry that has been crafted by, by somebody in the past or maybe even emerged organically through communities and they, they help us in our sacred, our, our sacred uh, worship and, and are part of our patrimony and sacred music. Mm-hmm. Ephraim, thanks for the call, and God bless you in uh, continuing on in the great tradition of singing in the liturgy and in so many and varied ways, which is, I mean, it makes a great point that it's obviously not just in the Latin rite, but uh, some of our Eastern Catholic brothers and sisters are certainly um, very familiar with the usage of, of hymns and sacred songs and sacred music, as well as chanting and singing the Mass as well. So, Ephraim, thank you for the call. Let's go now to Diana calling in from Mount Claire, New Jersey. Good morning, Diana. Welcome. Excuse me. Good afternoon to you. Good morning. I um, The topic made me think of the Whoopi Goldberg movie, Sister Act, mm. and I wonder <laughs> if Father would comment on the premise of that movie. I, I'm a little ashamed to say this, but I've never seen the movie. You know, <laughs> I don't know anything about it except that it has some hymns that some sisters, you know, sing in it. So I'm, I'm afraid I can't really comment on it because I've, I've never it, seen it. It's unfortunately, basically, um, Whoopi Goldberg is hiding out undercover in a convent because some people are after her, and um, while she's there, since she is a talented singer, she uh, takes the horribly um, undisciplined choir in hand and turns them around and makes them really good, but they sort of adapt music from 60s girl groups to to the mass, Uh, and the choir does, you know, like they say... uh, uh, the song My Guy, um, nothing you can do could ever take me away from my guy. They change guy to God. So it's, you know, it, it, they they take this music and it's worshipful to God, but it's just, um, it, it gets uh, a lot of attention and it gets people going into the church that otherwise would not have gone in there. And so I just wondered, you know, about that. Yeah. Sure. That so that's a great question. So even without, even without seeing the movie, um, I I know the dynamic you're talking about, and it's a it's a popular kind of idea that people that we've used, especially in the last you know sixty years, as popular music has become just so accessible through technology, radio, television, and and now the internet, uh, where we take something that is a secular song, and we can. Um, 
you know, craft it or shape it into something that helps us to connect with God. And I have no opposition to this at all. I mean, I think there's some, some, uh, some, in some cases, this can be very helpful to people. It can help them know melodies and sing along in, in some cases. But I would say that's not appropriate to use at mass because that's exactly what, what the church is trying to caution against when they say the, that secular and profane music does not, should not come into the liturgy. And the reason is the reason is this because while some people will hear that and will will uh, maybe be uh, you know excited that they they can change the lyrics that then will be applied to God for other people it will remind them of the original composer and their intent maybe making a love song or a romantic song it will it will actually lead other people away from from their focus on God so. The church is very careful about this kind of this kind of practice, and and that's why sacred music is wholly different from just adapting secular songs to to maybe reflect some values that we have as Christians. Again, it's not a bad um, thing to do in in and of itself, but it's certainly not something that we then bring into our liturgical prayer. Mm, very good. Our spiritual director today, Father Matthew Spencer, we're talking about sacred music. If you have a question to ask about sacred music or would like to point out some piece of sacred music that has been really helpful for you in rendering your worship to God, give us a call at 888-914-9149. Again, 888-914-9149. Or send us an email, innerlifeatrelevantradio.com. We're going to take our next break, but we got more of the show coming up on the other side of this break. So help, stay with us, and we will be right back. Follow him wherever he may go. There isn't an ocean today. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, the Catholic University for Independent Thinkers, invites high school juniors, seniors, and recent graduates to study the great books this summer at UD's two-week-long Arate program while earning three hours of college credit. Info at relevantradio.com slash UDallas. It is an appropriate song for Mass, but probably not for Lent, but uh, because of the A word that was just mentioned there. But uh, that's all right. We're uh, we're a little bit flexible here on the inner life. We can do uh, things since we are not in the sacred liturgy right here and right now. So welcome back to the inner life. My name is Patrick Conley. My thanks to Nick Sentovich, our producer, as well as Miranda Sinaceros, who is on the phones for us again today. We're talking about sacred music with our spiritual director, Father Matthew Spencer. And, uh, Father, there was a recently an article or a release from the Bishop of Wichita, was there not, on sacred music? I think, yeah, I think last fall, uh, Bishop uh, Carl Kem, I think is how you pronounce his last name, he released a document on sacred music for the Diocese of Wichita. And I, I was so happy to read his thoughts. You know, I mean, he he was not creating anything new. He was summarizing what the different what the church has said in various documents including some put out by by our own bishops over the years here in the US um but he was underscoring kind of some of the things that we were talking about for example that uh, music is an essential part of the liturgy and it's important that we we take that seriously he um you know one thing we haven't discussed uh 
much, uh, Patrick, is um, he was identifying the importance and the, the, the special place that organ has in the mass. And I think that's, that's important and something that we could really recover in, in the liturgy these days. I think after the Second Vatican Council, lots of organs started collecting dust in the churches. Uh, people turned to other instruments that maybe were more accessible to the volunteers that came. And so pianos were picked up and guitars were, were brought in. And uh, the organ is difficult to, to play. Not as many people know how to, um, how to play the organ well. And so it is hard sometimes in, in some parts of the country, especially, to find an organist. But the organ um, does have this special role in sacred music because of its, first of all, its longstanding history, also because of its very nature. So it uses wind to create uh, sound through pipes and, um, and it's, there's a theological kind of dimension that the church has reflected on over the centuries of, of that air kind of being symbolic of the Holy Spirit and bringing beautiful music into the space. Huh. Um, that, that isn't precisely what makes it more special than others, actually. The, the reason I would say that it has such an important place is because it's very uh, compatible, like, uh, in an audio sense uh, to um, to the liturgy, to singing. It's a very much a support instrument in a lot of uh, sacred music. That is to say, it, it supports the human voice rather than competing with it. And oftentimes in, in Mass that I hear, unfortunately, at Mass these days, the instrumentalist is kind of drawing much attention to their to their own skills and not always uh, giving as much attention to the human voice. So, yeah, um, yeah the, the role of, of organ is important. But I, I was very grateful for, uh, for Bishop Kem's uh, document that he published last fall. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, very good. And I'm glad you brought up that, uh, that the organ plays that uh, it's to be held in high esteem, I think is what Sacrosanctum mm-hmm. Concilium said about it. And, and uh, yeah, we find it in many of, our, many of our parishes as well. Speaking of instrumentation, I think Michael from San Antonio, Texas, has a comment on that. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for calling The Inner Life. Good morning. Thank you. I have to tell you how much I enjoyed your junk food analogy. I think it's really appropriate. And <laughs> okay. Sadly, uh, it probably ties in with, uh, you know, the demise of other things in our culture. That, that There's an argument here that uh, too many uh, Catholics are, are poorly catechized about the gifts of the Catholic Church. The early composer's uh, singular focus was on the divine, I believe, and praise and service was was the ultimate intention and not performance. But when music programs got struck down, and I had a, I had a brass choir in, in high school and college for a few years, you know, we supported that. But after the 80s, I think uh, there's almost an illiteracy for uh, classical music, uh, the structure and benefits, uh, the relaxation benefits. It's even, I think, been used in, in Alzheimer's work. But I, I was hoping Father would comment uh, and maybe even influence a few priests out there about wants versus needs. Um, people want junk food. That's why um, fast food places are thriving out there. But uh, don't we need, I think, uh, more guidance or direction? Maybe our priests, I, I've confronted many of them about why the musical liturgy has become increasingly uh, Protestant or popular music and, and this uh, commentary on noodling, trumpets, pianists, guitarists, 
uh, and then, of course, after all that long solo is applause. So wants versus needs, Father, and... Uh, hmm. Yeah, I think these are these are um, interesting things to ponder. And it, it's, I have to tell you, it, it is very hard for pastors, for priests these days, uh, for parishes to to implement some new uh, sacred music program. And that's because we do have to invest money in it, first of all. I mean, to have people of high skill, either conductors or uh, scola members, most of them will be volunteer but the ones who really know their musical, uh, you know, skills and craft uh, need to be compensated for. It. And this is just something we have to, we oftentimes as, as a church, we depend so much on volunteers. And I'm so grateful for so many people that give so much of their time. But in justice, it's important that we invest as a, as a church in, in, um, in people so that they can certainly lead the, the the church in sacred music. That's the first step, I think, making sure that our budgets have the space to have the right people there. Um, I think also, you know, you alluded to it a little bit. We, we are not always accustomed to sacred music. And this is especially true with Gregorian chant. You know, Gregorian chant uses what are called modes. It's very different from the modern musical scales um, not so much in the frequencies used, but in the style uh, and uh, the arrangement of notes and their progression, uh, in how they how they resolve at certain points and this kind of thing. And um, people are not used to it, and it does sound a little strange to people to 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 uh, to understand and to grasp. And sometimes that because it's a little, it's not quite as accessible. People gravitate to what they know, so those pop songs and those melodies that they can hum and that, you know, get, get stuck in their mind that they can listen to and, and that they can participate in. Those become kind of the easy out to say, well, this is just much simpler. We all know Amazing Grace. We can just sing this song together rather than saying, well, actually, there is a particular antiphon that the church asks us to use at this moment. Yeah. <laughs> and if we could learn that, if we could practice it as a church, as a community, if we could invest time in it, what my experience has been over the years is that the beauty of Gregorian chant and sacred polyphony, it does take time to eventually grasp, but that there's nothing else like it. I mean, there's nothing else like it that I've experienced on this earth. And, um, and that's why I think it does take an investment of time. It takes, it takes uh, pastors who are courageous and bishops who are supportive to kind of in the parishes say, okay, we're going to take some music and maybe you won't be able to sing along right away. That's okay because you're going to have to get used to these Gregorian modes and melodies. But with time, you will get it. And with time, you will understand how this fits so well. Mm-hmm. It takes time. It takes uh, formation and, and uh, education, but it's worth it in my opinion. Yeah, very good. Michael, thank you for the phone call. I appreciate it. Good question. And Father, just in our last uh, minute and a half here before we ask for your blessing, I think what you just mentioned was something important to point out is that, because a lot of people have, I've seen some emails come in. Um, I saw some phones on the board as well that said that well, they prefer silence. And sometimes I can understand that. Maybe it's right before Mass, um, choirs practicing or something like that. But my understanding is with that antiphon, specifically the communion antiphon, that that is meant to be sung um, be, uh, as as communion is beginning to be distributed, yeah? 
That's right. There are certain components of the mass that are musical by their very nature. And we've gotten away a lot with just reciting them. But that's um, that's a poverty, in my opinion. That's mm. not celebrating the liturgy as as we ought. And I'm not saying that we have to always have organ and a 50-person choir there. Um, at a daily mass, we can have a very simple uh, experience, but it helps to have a cantor. It helps to have people who, who know and understand this. And certain portions of the mass should, um, should always be sung. And it's pretty simple to do that once, once people are familiar with those tunes. Um, I, I understand. I'm talking in, in um, maybe the abstract because maybe in your parish, you just don't have somebody who has that musical ability coming to mass every sure. day. And yeah. in cases like that, of course, we accommodate. But we should strive to do as, as best as we can in the liturgy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a good note, to, so to speak, to end the show on. That uh, <laughs> that uh, yes, we we all can can improve in our in our understanding of the role of sacred music and our engagement with it. So thank you for that, Father. Thank you for being our spiritual director today. May we have a blessing from you as we close the show, Heavenly Father. We thank you for the gift of beauty, which inspires us to yearn and long for you. I ask you to inspire all of our listeners to seek out that beauty in all things, including the music they listen to and contribute to in the sacred liturgy. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, great conversation with Father Matthew Spencer about sacred music. If you missed any portion of it and want to go back and listen to it, you can always find us at relevantradio.com slash inner life. Tomorrow on the program, this is going to be an interesting one as well. We've got a relationship with our priest, with our bishop, and with the Pope himself. Father Mike Martin is going to provide some tips on cultivating each of those relationships. So I hope you can join us. Stay tuned for the Mass. In the meantime, grace and peace.